Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. glad to be able to uh, give you this presentation, which is going to be somewhat longish. So in the interest of time, I would rather just read the text, uh, scrolling it on the screen, so you can read it along with me, uh, which I hope will uh, help in following better, more easily. Uh, the somewhat complicated discussion that follows, okay? So that is one thing. Another thing is that uh, since the piece even so is rather long, and uh, this is actually an extract or original version of this um, projected piece, the link of which I'm going to share with everyone uh, or anyone who is interested, okay? Just uh, so you can see what is going on here um, in the published version. But um, again, in the interest of time, I will have to shorten this a little bit more. So I will have to skip a um, couple of sections, a uh, couple of paragraphs. Um, however, I really hope that uh, in the subsequent question and answers uh, period, um, we will have um, some opportunity to get back to those passages because those will deal with questions that I believe quite plausibly emerge um, in connection with uh, Aquinas' doctrine as um, it is exposed here. And so um, I hope that those questions will actually lead me back to some of the passages that I will have to skip in the initial presentation. Okay, now without further ado, let's get down to business. Okay. Um, Recently, there are more and more authors in the current literature on the philosophy of mind who hail Aristotelian hylomorphism as promising a viable passage between the flash-mangling still of dualism, uh, dualism and tearing body and soul apart and the soulless abyss of the characters of materialism sinking us into the depths of senseless cold matter. Okay, waxing poetic a little bit, but <laughs> the point uh, the philosoph philosophical point, I hope, is clear. These uh, contemporary authors are trying to sell hylomorphism as um, um, best uh, mid middle course between two bad extremes. Well, how Aristotelian of them, right? Now, um, I, for one, am guilty as charged on at least two counts on account of two papers listed in the bi bibliography you will see. But one could also cite any number, any number of analytical Thomists or even other contemporary philosophers of mind who are flirting with hylomorphism precisely for this reason, namely its promise to overcome the apparent impasse between materialism in its various modern guises of physicalism, emergentism, attribute dualism, etc., and dualism, namely substance dualism, plain and simple. So hylomorphism is coming back and not necessarily is just a sinister Catholic plot, to use Howard Robinson's happy phrase, but as a genuine theoretical alternative in contemporary philosophy of mind. However, 
As is the case with every major conceptual framework, hydromorphism too comes in many shades and colors. In this talk, I will attempt to give a more detailed and usual account of Aquinas' version of the hydromorphic union of body and soul. But before talking about what is specific in Aquinas' account, we should settle the main points of agreement among those who worked and nowadays work within a hylomorphist framework, despite all their finer differences. So to start with the apparently obvious, all hylomorphists agree that all material substances are composed of matter and form. I say that this simple claim is merely apparently obvious, for although it is just a mere explication of the meaning of the term, uh, providing, me and providing the meanings of the two Greek terms involved in it by means of more familiar English terms, when it comes to taking a serious look at the meanings of the English terms themselves, we may find the explanation actually more baffling than what it is supposed to explain. For what is this composition? And what are the things composed? What is matter? What is form? And what are the material substances they compose? But finally, um, it seems that we have a question that is easy to answer. Material substances are just the things we stumble upon in our ordinary experience, like rocks, rivers, trees, cats, dogs, horses, or humans. But what sense can we make of the claim that these things are composed that is put together from form and matter? Aren't living things put together from their limbs or organs, and those from tissues, and those from cells, and those from molecules, and those from atoms, which is the sort of composition they share even with non-living things, just as they share with them the lower levels of composition from subatomic particles, at which level we may soon reach the limits of our knowledge, or my knowledge for sure, but perhaps not the limit not the ultimate limit of lower levels of organization until we reach the absolute elementary constituents of absolutely everything there is in this universe. Actually, one way of making sense of hylomorphism is by pointing out that the composition of matter and form is a radically different kind of composition from the types of composition listed above. Although hylomorphism is absolutely compatible with these types of composition, provided they are understood in a certain way. Come on. <laughs> no problem. For there is a certain type of understanding of the composition of the complex structures of material substances, from basic particles through various levels of organization up to the complexity of living things, that is definitely incompatible with hylomorphism, namely, interpreting this multi-level organization of material substances in terms of metaphysical atomism. For on the atomistic interpretation, this multi-level organization is just the putting together of whatever our actual physics deems to be the most basic particles, and what our atomistic metaphysics will accordingly regard as the primary entities, the basic building blocks of reality, and we re will regard everything else as just a combination an organized, structured collection of these primary entities and primary units of reality. Now, I'm using these phrases here um, uh, in accordance with the following description. Um, primary unit is something that is counted as one in a process of counting, 
and relative to which everything else is that uh, everything else that is not a primary unit is counted as a secondary unit, which is either a part or a possibly structured collection of primary units. So for instance, the primary units on our ordinary understanding of uh, what the primary entities are in our experience, let's say members of this, uh, members of this audience. One, two, three, four, we can count um, the actual individuals. The secondary unit would be the audience itself, right? The collection of all these individuals, which would be counted as one against, uh, let's say, uh, another collection of um, audience members in another room, right? Another type of secondary unit would be um, parts of individuals, such as my left arm, your right arm, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? So, so much for the distinction between primary and secondary unit. Um, by contrast, um, hylomorphists assert that the primary units of reality are just the primary substances, such as material substances, such, such as the material substances listed above, while not denying that these primary units do have some intrinsic complexity, in fact, various types of complexity, depending on how we distinguish their constitutive parts. So atomists uh, claim metaphysical atomists, that they, there are these absolutely uh, simple primary units, the building blocks of the universe, and everything else is a secondary unit relative to those. Whereas hylomorphists would claim that primary units are the primary substances we ordinarily are acquainted with as such, and the secondary units are the parts or the collections of these primary substances, okay? Now, so one way of making sense of the explication of the common ground, the four sorts of hylomorphism, is by pointing out hylomorphism's contrast with metaphysical atomism. Um, for atomism, the primary units are, of reality are some primitive particles that make up material substances. Whereas for hylomorphism, the primary units are these substances themselves, although they do have some subunits, namely their various sorts of parts. In other words, for atomism, the primary units are, of reality are absolutely simple, in principle, indivisible entities, and everything else is their combination, owing their relative unity to the ways in which the primary units are combined. By contrast, for hylomorphists, the primary units are actually undivided, but possibly divisible primary substances containing several sorts of relative subunits as their constitutive parts, depending on how, how we carve out these parts conceptually. Okay. As is well known, Aristotle rejected metaphysical atomism on the grounds that if atoms are extended, then they are not strictly atoms, that is, in principle, indivisible units, for then um, they can at least conceptually be divided into really distinct quantitative parts. Whereas if they are point-like, unextended entities, then they can never make up extended bodies. Thus, he opted for hylomorphism, which does not identify the primary units of physical reality with indivisible units, but allows them to be complex structured units, which have both several sorts of parts or relatively subunits um, resulting from the conceptual, not physical division of the primary units, like the fractions of natural number one, such as halves or thirds, and the several sorts of relative superunits, like natural numbers, the multitudes measured by the 
um, matchable number one, resulting from the combination, organization, or any sort of collection of the primary units, just as armies are ordered, organized collections of soldiers, etc. It is against the background of these general preliminary considerations about the metaphysical notions of being and unity that the further details and refinement, refinements of, medieval of the medieval hylomorphist tradition arise. Given that within this tradition, the primary units are not indivisible, but have some intrinsic complexity on account of the relative subunits making them up, which is the clearest, especially in the case of the organic, organic units we call living things, medieval hylomorphists devised various ways of accounting for the different levels of organization found within living, or, living organisms based not so much on structure as on function. For of course, when we are distinguishing subunits within a unit by conceptually dividing it, we may do so in a number of different ways, depending on the basis of our division. Thus, we may divide a horse in any old way, say, into its left ear and the rest, or its left and right side, but also more naturally into its various limbs or organs, or even into such structurally uh, less easily identifiable subsystems as its immune system or its nutritive, reproductive, or cognitive systems. Sometimes, indeed most of the time, we may be totally ignorant as to what it is that enables something to perform some function. But with, that would certainly not prevent us from giving it a name, usually deriving it, uh, the name from the name of that function. So for instance, when we talk about an organism's nutritive system, we are naming it not on the basis of what it is, but on the basis of what it does, namely nutrition. However, we do not want to talk about what it does, but what it is. So we are just naming it from what it does, but intend to give the name to, or impose the name on, the thing that does the nutrition. Of course, this is just the good old scholastic distinction between aquil and atquot nomen imponitur, that is, from which and on which a name is imposed, the classic example of which was provided by Isidore Vassell's somewhat dubious etymology of lapis, a stone, that is what a stone is, as laden spadan, something hurting the foot, uh, that is what a stone does. But it is crucial in this context to keep, in, uh, to keep this in mind because when we are talking about the soul as the principle of life, or when we are talking about forms in general, we are naming and identifying items in our discourse in this way most of the time. Thus, we may not know what any form mentioned in some medieval metaphysical argument is. That is, we may not have the essential definition of the item we are talking about. Nevertheless, we can still name it and identify it on the basis of knowing what it does or can do. In fact, this is the way we usually identify and classify primary substances themselves. Aquinas famously complained that no philosopher could have ever completely investigated the nature of a single fly. One famous claim uh, about Aquinas's uh, sort of allegedly skeptical stance about the knowability of the proper differences of um, um, various kinds of entities. Yet this fact did not prevent him from naming and identifying the kind of creature he was complaining about. And even today, when we are certainly better off, at least with regard to the geneticist's favorite pet, the common fruit fly, 
This is precisely how we use its scientific name, Drosophila melanogaster, which comes from its dew-loving habit and dark belly. Whereas we obviously do not want to name by this name just any dark belly dew lover. Now, with this semantic observation in mind about the imposition and application of our terms, we may say that originally, before the alchemist linguistic turn and uh, medieval philosophy, when a medieval, uh, when a medieval hylomorphist was talking about a form as a component of a material substance, all he meant was whatever there was in the thing that made a predicate true of that thing, whereas the matter of the thing was taken to be the subject that the form informed in such a way as to make the predicate true of the thing thus configured. Now here I'm reviving the somewhat obsolete term M-formed to distinguish M-formation from information, which is uh, the formation of a mind about something, whereas M-formation is the formation of matter to be something in real existence. Okay. Um, I have a reference so, so for a paper, um, uh, and to a paper there uh, for, for this distinction in the footnote. So, for instance, whether or not we know what it is um, in this gas that enables it to produce water when it is burned in air, we can call it hydrogen, literally water generator, right? Denominating it from what it does, but intending to name what it is, signifying in it the form, uh, whatever it is, that enables it to perform this characteristic operation. And the same goes for all other predicates. Accordingly, when it comes to living things, that is animate beings, they are called animate or animatu in Latin, precisely because they have the form signified by this predicate called anima, that is the soul, which is the animating life-giving principle of the living thing, whatever it is. And since for living thing to live, is for it to be, absolutely speaking, that is substantially, and not just to be somehow, that is accidentally. A soul must be a form of a living thing on account of which it substantially exists, that is, its substantial form. Accordingly, it, if existence is the actuality of every form, as Thomas says, assess actualitas omnis forme vel nature, then form, in turn, can be described metaphysically to complement the previously given semantic description as the significance of a common term in an individual, as the determination of the way of being, modus ascendi, of each kind of thing, determining what this kind of thing can or cannot do. However, given that such a substantial form comes to be known through the observable vital functions a living organism essentially has, such as nutrition, reproduction, sensation, or even intellectual cognition, depending on the kind of organism it is, the names imposed upon each form accounting for the organism's ability to perform these functions may signify the same unique substantial form in each individual organism, or they may signify distinct substantial forms accounting for these functions at the different organizational levels of matter alluded to earlier. This is one way of putting the famous medieval problem of the plurality or unicity of substantial forms. In fact, putting, this issue, putting the issue this way actually has direct bearing 
on the contemporary analytical hylomorphist project. For the different levels of the organization of matter we all learned about in high school, especially in living things, may now seem to be directly identifiable with the scholastic pluralists of different substantial forms in the same individual, given contemporary hylomorphists' tendency to explain the scholastic notion of substantial form as the organization, configuration, or structure of matter. For it's not like some analytic philosopher suddenly discovered that humans were composed of matter and form rather than from subatomic sub particles, atoms, molecules, organized into organelles, cells, tissues, and complete um, biological human bodies, as they were told in high school. Instead, having realized that Aristotle's and, uh, and or Aquinas's hylomorphic conception of the ontological status of the human mind may, um, may offer a way out of the apparently bad alternatives one encounters in contemporary philosophy of mind, these philosophers figured that this conception may even be made compatible with the high school story of the organization of matter. So arguing for, the, for their version of hylomorphism, they usually, usually start with the implied task of making the Aristotelian idea more palatable to those who would otherwise think it is, it is just one of those old wives' tales belonging together with astrology and phlogiston in some dusty corner of the Museum of Failed Scientific Ideas. Accordingly, such authors, first of all, assure their readers that they know all the high school pop science stuff we all agree on, but also that the language of hylomorphism may just be superimposed on that talk without further ado, for while we talk about all these different levels of organization of matter in the first place, the hylomorphists talk about matter is just talk about this stuff that everything is made of, whereas when the hylomorphist talks about form, it is just another way of talking about these configurations or structures of this stuff we are all familiar with from the high school um, pop science story. Furthermore, explaining form as the configuration or structure of this stuff may give one the impression that it is basically just the arrangement of the particles that make up the matter of the thing. So it is just this, and it is just an inner shape, as it were, of how the particles of matter are arranged in constituting the macroscopic th uh, thing we are talking about. So, and this would be the relevant analogy, just like the visible and tangible form of the thing is its outer shape, determining its external limits, the substantial form of the thing is its inner shape, determining the interrelations of its particles. However, this understanding of the description might be taken to imply that the determination is just the reverse of what it is supposed to be. It is not the form that determines how the particles are arranged, but rather it is the arrangement of the particles that determines what form the thing has, since the form of the thing is just this arrangement itself. Whereas the big appeal of hylomorphism would be rather this top-down explanation, not explaining function from mechanism, but explaining what mechanism is needed for performing such and such a function um, uh, on account of the form of the thing. Okay, now, um, we are getting into further details um, soon enough. 
Now, indeed, on this understanding, it becomes a vital issue to understand how the particles, their, their arrangement, and the form are related to each other. Is the form anything over and above the arrangement of the particles? If not, then what do we gain besides the vain attempt at reviving an obsolete lingo by talking about this arrangement or organization of matter as a form, or this organization, organization of matter as a form? But if it is something other than this arrangement, then what the heck is it? And how can uh, it act on the arrangement of the particles? How does it fit into our contemporary physics and uh, chemistry and biology? Finally, if the notion of a substantial form um, of a thing is defined as nothing but the arrangement of the particles of matter, or something else that mysteriously determines this arrangement from inside, as it were, then this understanding of the notion of a substantial form above excludes the possibility of what the scholastics refer to as subsistent forms, that is, forms that do not inform any chunk of matter, such as angels or separate souls or God. Right? Indeed, on top of all these general difficulties, we run into another, more specific difficulty, contrary to Aquinas' position, even with regard to the forms of material substances themselves. For if form is the structure of matter, then this structure is precisely what determines what this stuff is organized into. So a substantial form would seem to be the same as the essence of a material substance, which Aquinas explicitly denies. So when Aquinas says, siding with uh, Avicenna contra Averis, that the essence of a, of a material substance is not only its form, but somehow comprises both matter and form, then he is making an important distinction between two different types of materiological divisions of the same material substance into its principles. For even if Aquinas is willing to call the essence or nature of material substances their form, when it really matters, as in the context of the theology of resurrection, for example, he draws a strict distinction between the form of the whole, form of the tears, which he identifies with the essence of the thing, such as Socrates' humanity, and the form of the part, form of partis, which is the single substantial form of the thing, such as Socrates' soul, immediately informing its prime matter. Without going into further detail, it should be clear, however, that both a substantial form and an essence are, for Aquinas, just differently distinguished parts of the same primary unit, namely a composite material substance, com uh, composite primary substance, I'm sorry. Um, and you have some further discussion of this in the, in the paper referred to here. So these forms, whether we are talking about the form of the whole or about the form of the part, are material uh, for Aquinas, not because they are the structure or configuration of matter, for structure or configuration in any sense whatsoever, as we shall see, for him actually presupposes the actualization of matter by a substantial form, determining its modus ascendi, but because their act of being is one and the same uh, act that is had by the composite, as well as by its matter, whether it's designated matter, the uh, counterpart of the form of the whole, or its prime matter, the counterpart of the form of the part. Thus, on Aquinas' understanding, 
Even a material substantial form cannot be identified with the structure of this matter because matter can have any structure at all only if it is already actualized by a substantial form determining its way of being, which in turn demands a certain structure. In fact, we can see Aquinas' idea best contrasted with the approach of trying to identify substantial forms with the structures of matter at its different levels of organization, which would correspond to these scholastic pluralist multiple substantial forms in the same individual. If we take a closer look at, the, at his main argument, that is Aquinas' main argument, for the thesis of the unicity of substantial forms. So let's do that just now. First, genuine, strict metaphysical argument within the Thomistic framework. The argument may be reconstructed as follows. A substantial form F of a substance S is such that for S to be is for F to be. That is, such that the existence S or actus ascendi, act of being of the form, is the same as the existence of the substance. For otherwise, the form is accidental, since for an accidental form to be is not for the substance it informs to be, but it is for the substance to be somehow, whence an accidental form may come and go, leaving the existence of the substance unaffected. And what the heck is I'm, I'm talking about when I'm talking about the existence of the thing? It is simply what the predicate exists signifies in it, just like the term man signifies the humanity of this individual, that individual, that individual in them, etc., etc. So we, are, we may not know metaphysically what this item is, but we can um, properly point out, identify, and trace it in the course of our argumentation, right? There are lots of things we don't know uh, what they are, but we can conceive of them can talk about them, can meaningfully identify and re-identify them. And along the way in, uh, in this discourse, we can eventually perhaps find out even about their nature. Okay, so that is the um, general uh, setup, the general uh, relationship between these primary semantic considerations leading up um, the way to metaphysical argumentation. So, when I say S of, uh, S of this S substance, I simply mean what is signified in this thing by the term is, okay? And when it ceases to be true of the thing, the thing ceases to be, right? That's all. And um, uh, when uh, we are talking about the substantial form, it is, um, something signified by a substantial predicate of the thing, right? Like those on the tree of porphyry, dividing substance into material, immaterial, uh, material substance body into living, non-living, etc., down to the level of humans, uh, uh, rational animals, right? And uh, all these um, terms signify something in the individual on account of which they are true of it. And now the question is whether what these predicates signify in, the, uh, in one and the same individual are distinct from one another, hierarchically ordered, uh, plural, substan uh, several substantial forms, or just one substantial form signified by these different uh, predicates on account of the different more or less specific concepts 
that give the meaning to these predicates, okay? Now, let's just uh, take um, this substantial form F of a substance S, which is substantial, um, meaning that its acts of being, its act of being is the same as the act of being of the substance, right? Now suppose S, this substance, has or acquires another substantial form, say F prime, which is an entity distinct from F. And so we just assume that the same thing could have two substantial forms at the same time, right? Okay. Now, if um, F prime is also uh, a substantial form of the substance S, then its S must be the same as the S of the substance S, right? But since um, F and F prime are taken to be two distinct entities, the S of each is distinct from that of the other, right? So we have this picture here. The uh, S of F, the original substantial form of the substance, uh, S, um, is not identical with the S of F prime, right? Because they are two distinct entities. But um, F being a substantial form of S, its S is identical with the S of S, the substance, right? But then, from this it follows that the S of S cannot be the S of F prime by the substitutivity of identicals, right? And what does that mean if F prime's S is not the same as the S of the substance? It means that it can only be an accidental form, right? Because that is precisely how we understood what an accidental form is. Accidental form is a form, the S of which is not the same as the S of the substance. So it may come and go without the disruption of the substance. This is almost literally um, Porphyry's um, uh, definition of accident in the isogopy, right? If you remember. Now, so um, F prime can only be an accidental form of S, contrary to our original assumption, namely that F prime was another substantial form of S when the assumption must be false. Therefore, mm, no substance can have two or more substantial forms. But if a substance exists, then it has at least one substantial form, since its existence is the same as the existence of its substantial form, so it must have exactly one substantial form. To be sure, um, so this is Aquinas' demonstration um, uh, teased out uh, in somewhat more detail he uh, rather cursorily states this uh, um, argument, but it is a strict demonstration. Um, nevertheless, Aquinas' argument was not taken to be a knockdown argument by others, mostly Augustinians, who would not buy into Aquinas' assumptions about the relationships among forms, their acts of existence, and the acts of existence of the substance they inform. However, if we properly explicate and understand these assumptions, they may be seen to become not only acceptable, but even plausible enough to support Aquinas' argument and its conclusion. I have a paper here that uh, does that, that job, actually. Um, the first obvious and uh, universally endorsed assumption 
um, uh, in, in these um, uh, considerations is the principle of the convertibility of being and unity, namely the Aristotelian thesis that every being is one, that is one unit, and every unit is a being. However, we must note Aquinas' specific understanding of the Aristotelian thesis, namely that the convertibility of the two predicates, namely being and one or unit, means that they signify the same in reality and they differ in their concepts, insofar as the concept of one adds to the concept of being the connotation of indivision, as he famously says, unum est ens indivisum, one is undivided being. Accordingly, one being, an ens, um, uh, which is something Habens esse, is denominated a being, as well as one thing, a unit, from its esse, its act of being, octus ascending. Therefore, not one being can have two acts of being, because two acts of being would make two beings. It's that simple. Okay, and uh, Aquinas uh, very clearly uh, discusses this principle in his question about whether in the um, hypostatic union, in the person of Christ, uh, there are two acts of being in the same suppositum, namely one eternal uh, divine existence and one uh, finite temporal human existence. Um, he, cannot, uh, he cannot endorse that because that would make Christ into two individuals, not one. Okay, now, in any case, in possession of this distinction, Aquinas can uh, coherently hold that uh, no two inherent forms can share the same act of being, for then two entities would have to possess the same act of being in the same way, which is precisely the absurdity to which pluralists would have to commit our, um, themselves. So Aquinas maintains that even if a substance and its substantial form can share the same essa, this is only because they do not have it in the same way, whence they are not entities in the same sense, countable together in the same order of entities. Accordingly, the pluralists are implicitly committed not only to the absurdity that one substance, one entity, consists of several entities that share its essa, given that they are all supposed to be the substantial forms of the same substance, but also that these several entities um, each is one entity in the same sense, denominated being from the same one essa. However, Aquinas' uh, Aquinas's conception solved this problem, solves this problem by positing just one substantial form, which therefore shares the essa of the substance it informs, and yet it does not make with the substance two entities, because they are, they are entities in different senses, having the same essa differently. Or not so fast, one may object now. Aquinas, um, and uh, there is this longish, uh, uh, long uh, quotation uh, from uh, Aquinas' quadribital questions, which makes the difference very clearly. How, uh, in what sense, the substance can be said to be a being, in what sense the substantial form is said to be a being, and as that by which the substance has the being, and matter uh, as that in which the form has the asset of the thing that it actualizes. Okay. Now, but one may object um, in the following fashion to this. Aquinas famously argued that the human intellective soul, on account of the immateriality of its intellect, 
is not only a form inherent in matter existing as that by which the substance is, but also this, uh, the uh, subsisting substance underlying um, uh, the immaterial operations of the intellect existing as that which is. So the human soul, according to Aquinas, is a being not only in the sense in which a form is, but also in the same sense in which the composite of form and matter is, right? So Aquinas distinguished these two senses um, of, uh, uh, in which uh, uh, being can be attributed to a substance and to its form. Substance is that which is, and the form is that by which the substance is, okay? However, in the case of the interactive soul, uh, Aquinas argues that since it has an immaterial power with its immaterial acts, it is also an underlying subject to these accidental activities, the intellectual operations of the um, intellective faculty, right? So it also has to exist in also the same sense as the substance, as that which is, right? Which also has further forms informing it. Now what then? Um, uh, uh, here comes the objection. Whenever X and Y are both F in the same sense, and X is not identical with Y, then they constitute two Fs, not one. Therefore, if the human soul and the human being, uh, whose soul it is, are beings in the same sense, then they are two beings in the same sense, not one, which seems to be a classic case of substance dualism, which Aquinas rejects. Or is he really uh, um, uh, committed to some sort of lurking dualism that he doesn't want to confess to, right? Now, he is not guilty of writing a confession, I would say, because this objection is fallacious, because it relies on a principle that easily leads to paradox. For clearly, the principle as quoted is valid only if the variables it uses, these x and y, um, are of the same type, ranging over items of the same type. But just because the items in question are f in the same sense, that may not guarantee that they are of the same type. After all, just because the halves, thirds, or quarters of a cake are all parts of the same cake in the same sense, you cannot add them up and say that the two halves and the three thirds and the four quarters of the cake add up to nine parts together um, when you are differently um, uh, carving up the cake. You cannot have nine um, uh, slices coming from two halves, um, three thirds, four quarters, etc. Um, uh, because if based on the divisions just listed, you would uh, just listed, you would promise to hand out nine slices, then you would run out of cake after handing out the first two halves, leaving the remaining seven promised sli slices undelivered. Indeed, you cannot say either that because the cake mentally carved up in two halves is a whole cake and a totally intact cake um, you don't even think about cutting up is another whole cake because it is uh, undivided even mentally and what is divided cannot be the same as what is undivided as someone might wistfully think therefore you have two cakes right so you have a cake undivided and you have a, uh, you have a cake that is two halves and so are those two cakes then no, it is the same cake 
just uh, carved up uh, uh, mentally uh, in a different way. And um, they um, do not constitute a number. In general, whenever we are counting units together, we have to keep in mind that the process of counting that is adding up units to yield a number of units presupposes a principle of division and identification of the units to be added together. After all, unum stands in divisum. What is one? A unit is an undivided being, and uh, any divisible unit can be divided in any old ways to yield some subunits, which, however, are not on a par with the unit of which they are the subunits. So if the units are of different orders or types, carved out based on different principles of division and identification, we cannot just add them up to yield a number of items without further ado. As Aquinas himself succinctly put it, the part does not constitute a number with the whole. Therefore, even if the human soul is a being in the same sense as the whole human being, of which it is an essential part, sharing with it the same undivided act of being, the soul and the human being still do not constitute two beings in the same sense, but one being, one substance of which the soul is a substantial part. Okay, so um, the objection is simply based on conflating different types of entities and counting them together, which is illicit. That's all. So form and matter and the substance they constitute, as well as any of the substance's integral parts, share the same substantial act of being determined by the form. Yet each of these items has the same act differently. The substance has this, that which is the form as that by which the substance is, and we might add the matter as the subject in which the, uh, this form is, as in its subject. Um, in any case, one consequence of Aquinas' interpretation of his unicity thesis is that all the different organizational structures of matter, of a material substance they, they constitute, presuppose and so cannot be identical with the single substantial form actualizing this chunk of matter, determining the way it is, and thereby further determining its material powers realized by the structure, structures required by its characteristic functions, that is the things it can do or undergo. Thus, just as a horse soul organizes matter in such a way as to produce legs in this matter, and a fish soul in such a way as to produce fins, so at a lower level, it determines the chemical and organic structure of their respective reproductive systems, which is why one cannot generate the other. Um, let me see. There's still quite a lot <laughs> to be covered here. So, um, so, so far so good, it might seem. But um, what is this mystical determination or organization of matter the soul is supposed to do? Why couldn't the soul, at least an animal or plant, plant soul, be just the same as this organization of matter? And so why couldn't the direction of determination be just the opposite, not the principle of organization determining the components, but rather the nature and properties of the components determining the principle of organization? Why should this determination um, be top-down 
who are still requiring these organic structures, so to speak, rather than bottom-up, these organic structures constituting a horse soul. Again, in the answer to this question, a great deal depends on the understanding of what happens with the components in a genuine union, forming a genuine unit, as opposed to uh, the mere congeries of several distinct, no matter how closely intertwined units. For the if the components of a composite whole are the same as they were before they were composed, that is, if they existed before entering the composition and preserved their existence and identity in the composite, then the composite is a mere aggregate of replaceable units, like a computer, no matter how complexly and, uh, and tightly built it may seem, is a mere aggregate of replaceable modules, such as IC cards. On the other hand, if the components of a newly generated composite, that is, the functionally and structurally distinguishable components it is made of, do not exist in the composite in the same way they existed independently before their composition, and the components um, the composite is made from do not preserve their own actual existence and identity upon entering into composition with each other, then the newly generated composite is a genuine primary unit with its own single substantial existence in which the components have only some relative unity, but their function and structure is, is determined by what and how they contribute to the structure and function of the whole. The substantial form of such a composite whole is whatever it is on account of which such a genuine unit is capable of preserving its existence, unity, and identity over time. But what is this form? If it is anything over and, uh, over and above the unified structure of the components of the whole composite, then where is it in the whole? And how does it exert its preservative function? On the other hand, if it is not anything over and above the unified structure and uh, components of the whole composite, then shouldn't it again be just the spatial-temporal configuration of the uh, components extended along with their extension, configuring uh, them part by part? As we could see, for Aquinas, a soul, the substantial form of a living thing, informs the whole living body. After all, it is the principle of life. So wherever there is life in living organisms and their parts, there is the soul. Indeed, it is one and the same soul, at the same whole soul, uh, the substantial form of the living thing, directly informing prime matter that actualizes this structure. So it is the same whole soul that is in every part of the living body. However, when Aquinas says that um, it, is the, uh, it is the whole soul that is in every part of the uh, body, he does not mean the totality of any extended parts, but rather the totality of the essence of the soul. That is, whatever it is that is capable of maintaining the structure and enables its essential functions. I quote, when, he when we say that the whole soul is any part of the body, we mean by whole the totality of perfection of its nature and not some totality of parts. But that whole soul, uh, but that whole essence of the soul surely permeates the whole body in its every quantitative part, giving it its existence, that is, its life, unity, and identity. Um, in fact, this goes for all material substantial forms, except 
that substantial, uh, accept that the substantial forms that are souls enable essential functions that are self and species sustaining vital functions such as metabolism, reproduction, sensation, and even intellection. However, it is only in this last case, in the case of the intellective human soul, that Aquinas would hesitate to call the substantial form enabling this function a material form. But not because he would think it is unextended, for in his view, all forms are per se unextended, except dimensive quantity itself. It is quantity only that is extended on its own, and it is this quantity that extends um, the dimensions of bodies, their surface, and whatever uh, is received in the surface and uh, in the dimensions, etc., etc. But all other forms, other than quantity per se, are unextended. And so is the substantial form. Um, for, um, so rather for him, the immateriality of the intellective soul would consist in the way it possesses its existence, which is also the existence of the body it informs and the existence of the composite whole, namely human life. For Aquinas argues that thinking, the characteristic function of the human intellect, the power that enables us to think, is an activity that cannot take place in a material medium. That is, it cannot be the activity of any material organ, such as the brain. You're not thinking with your brains. Brain, uh, the brain just uh, supplies the, uh, well, the sensory database for the intellectual functions of abstraction, um, judgment formation, and reasoning. Now, whether or not we accept Aquinas' argument uh, for this conclusion, by the way, um, I am um, uh, in, in the paper referred to in this footnote, I take on the job of uh, reconstructing what I take to be the best uh, argument for the immateriality of the intellect in Aquinas. I hope we can get back to this point um, very soon uh, toward the end of this talk. So whether or not we accept Aquinas' argument for this conclusion, we may still appreciate the consistency of the resulting non-materialistic and non-dualistic solution he provides on the basis of this conclusion. The intellect, being a non-material power, cannot inhere in matter. But being a power and not a substance, pacha averis, it must inhere in a subject. So it inheres in the intellective soul itself as its subject. However, the soul itself is a form and forming matter, for which to be is for it to and for matter. But being the subject of an immaterial power, it is also a substance for which to be, it does not have to inform anything. So the existence of the human soul is not necessarily identical with the existence of the body, even if it actually is. Thus, it is actually uh, uh, the truly, genuinely substantial form of the body, but it is not dependent for its ongoing existence and activity upon and forming the body. Therefore, it is naturally capable of surviving the body. So here is Aquinas's um, main argument for the natural immortality of the human soul based on the immateriality of its intellect, which is immaterial because it does not inform any part of the matter that the soul informs, because the intellect inheres in the soul alone.
Okay. Now, uh, finally, we managed to reach some conclusions. Um, so obviously, this quick, quick sketch of Aquinas' position cannot deal with all possible objections to its consistency, but at least it may show the possibility of its consistency. To see this more clearly, here is a brief point-by-point -point summary of what can be our final takeaway from the foregoing. In the first place, for Aquinas, the quiditative predicates of a substance all signify its single substantial form and denominated by this form. Thus, man, rational, animal, etc., all signify the same substantial form of man, although under different concepts obtained by different processes of abstraction, and they all denominate a human being. But this substantial form um, determines for itself a certain quantity of matter with the requisite organic structure for its powers within a definite range of quantities. So, although any part of a human being is human, being informed by the human soul, it is only the whole human being that is a man, but not any quantitative part of it. Um, there is a, a detailed discussion that I had to skip um, for this conclusion there. Um, in the second place, since Aquinas does not identify the soul with its own powers, Aquinas can have an immaterial power inherent in a matter-free form, which is matter-free in the sense that matter is not its integral part, which, however, informs matter as its substantial form. In the third place, for Aquinas, the immateriality of the intellect intellective soul does not have to mean that it is unextended and the materiality of animal souls does not mean that they are extended. After all, for him, all material substantial forms, whether they are souls or not, are unextended, as the substantial forms that inform matter are presupposed by the quantity that extends a body, however large or small. Furthermore, for Aquinas, it is a metaphysically, metaphysically provable conclusion that the existence of any creature is distinct from the essence of that creature. So several distinct items can share the same existence as do matter, form, and composite, but in different ways, as that in which something is, as that by which something, and, uh, something, uh, something is, and as that which is, respectively. And even the same item can have the same existence in several different ways, as the human soul exists both as that by which the human being is, and as that which is, as an agent having its own activity, which is, as such, is at the same time the activity of the whole individual whose substantial form it is. Finally, this substantial form, just like any other substantial form of a material substance, is everywhere as a whole by its essence in the whole body, and in all of its parts, as long as it informs it, still, Given that it has its own power, um, uh, has its own proper operations, which it can therefore perform even without united to the body, it can also exist without the body. Hence, its separation from the body is just the end of the existence of the human being. But for the human soul, it is just the continuation of its subsistence existence, which at the moment of, de of the death of the human persons person simply ceases to be its inherent existence in the body. And so that is the end for all of us in the end. Thank you. <laughs>
so thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm rather really sorry that it had to be so rushed, this presentation, but I hope it uh, still by and large made sense. And uh, perhaps it was helpful that you were able to read it with me, and that was the point of doing so. Okay, uh, any questions or um, perhaps before any questions, let me just show you something. As I said, Anybody, uh, so uh, in fact, I, I will ask uh, David to um, distribute this paper um, to all those present. After all, I think that is the point of um, uh, the sign up list that you signed when you, I hope he can um, easily distribute this. And I just want to call your attention to the fact that um, the original PDF, which is not quite well visible here contains uh, several links to other papers. So here, here. Uh, the links just uh, cannot be seen as marked in this copy because uh, this computer does not have Adobe Acrobat Reader. It opened uh, um, the file in um, uh, Chrome, and it, does, uh, it uh, does have the links, but does not show them. So I, I just remember where they are. In any case, the papers are linked here, and in the, in the copies that you will receive, you can just click on the links because they will become visible. So they will lead you to these other papers. Uh, so for instance, this one, which is the published version of what I just read. Here's another one, um, which I delivered to a bunch of uh, German computer scientists uh, uh, last summer. Uh, uh, mm, shocking them to hell, really, with the, uh, with the conclusion that uh, um, there are certain features of natural language as we humans can use and uh, produce it, that there is no way um, artificial intelligence uh, will be able to imitate, precisely because of the deep metaphysical differences between um, uh, what we use for language processing, namely our immaterial intellect and what uh, computers use for language processing, their material chips. Uh, so certain um, uh, creative features of language that we uh, just live with on a daily basis uh, simply cannot be um, part and parcel of how computers uh, uh, can process a natural language. It's an interesting conclusion. Uh, coming quite directly from Aquinas' um, uh, conclusion concerning the immateriality of the intellect, which I'm trying to mm, prop up, let's say, in this um, particular paper on Aquinas versus Buridan on the universality of human concepts and the immateriality of the human intellect. In this paper, um, uh, I try to give a substance to the claim that there are good metaphysical reasons for uh, the conclusion that um, the human intellect is immaterial. Um, despite um, some apparently very plausible objections to this argument that Aquinas presents in several places, coming from the universal representation of our concepts, the universality of these concepts, uh, Aquinas argues, uh, can be realized only in, an, only in an immaterial medium. That is the gist of the argument, which I'm trying to articulate better in this particular piece. 
And finally, here is um, a uh, somewhat earlier paper that um, gives a more or less full exposition of um, the consistency of Aquinas' disposition and also um, uh, uh, the argument, again, for the immateriality of the intellect. So, uh, as you, uh, uh, you could see, I've been dancing around this topic for uh, a couple of decades now <laughs> and uh, um, uh, tried to articulate it from several different angles. And uh, that is at least um, um, something that uh, should make understandable why I couldn't cram everything into one lecture. But I really hope that um, if um, you feel after this presentation there are various holes or um, uh, uh, unresolved issues, then you can come up with your questions. And uh, now I can perhaps fill in that holes and, uh, and uh, close up that ga those gaps, whatever they are. So looking forward to receiving your questions now. Or objections, or um, devastating criticisms. Okay, yes? It's a clarifying question. Mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, Aristotle speculated that it was possibly only the intellect that survived the death of the body. Yes. And I, I was kind of hearing that a little bit. You, you were kind of making distinction between immaterial intellect and the soul. And it, I'm just looking for a little clarification. I was mm -hmm. kind of thinking, okay. is it that immaterial intellect that's dragging the soul up with it after the death of the body? I just missed that interaction. Uh, that, uh, you are not the only one, obviously, who was confused about this point a little bit. Because Aristotle himself is not quite clear. This is, um, uh, and especially there is this obvious tension between uh, the second book of the anima, uh, uh, identifying the soul as the substantial form of the organic living body, and uh, talking, and the third book that uh, then presents uh, arguments uh, uh, for the immateriality of the human intellect. So does that mean that the intellect is something separate from this uh, inherent material form that is the soul? That was um, Averius's interpretation. And uh, so um, he thought that since material forms are multiplied on account of uh, being uh, received in different chunks of matter, that designated matter, right? Um, any form that is not so uh, multiplied in different chunks of matter must be one single undivided entity and must exist separately from any chunk of matter. And so if the uh, Aristotelian intellect is immaterial. It must be a separate substance. And so our thinking is done in this separate intellect. And we are just hooked up to this somehow, pretty much like our uh, computers um, or cell phones are hooked up to uh, servers in the cloud, right? So if we are just latching on to, we are just exchanging information with this um, supercomputer or this uh, 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 thought processor, let's say. And uh, we are just uh, inputting our uh, uh, individual questions um, into this thought processor. It does the thinking, uh, sends back the answer, and, and now we have a conclusion. So that is pretty much the uh, avaristic idea. 
And that is what uh, Aquinas are used most vehemently against uh, in uh, the um, De Unitate Intellectus Contra Avaristas. Um, and uh, says that no, this is all wrong. Um, uh, it, is, uh, it would make it impossible uh, for us to claim that we individual humans think. The thinking is done up there. Uh, we are not thinkers. Um, what makes us thinkers is that we uh, individually have our individual faculties uh, of uh, thinking. So um, the uh, uh, agent and possible intellect, right, our intellective faculty, uh, must be inherent in us individually and multiplied with the multiplicity of um, individual humans. But then um, this must be inherent uh, in individual souls. But how can it be in, uh, immaterial if it is um, um, inherent faculty of um, a material individual? Aquinas says it can be because it is inherent not in the soul, body, form, matter, composite. It is inherent in the form alone. So that is immaterial in that sense. And that is what renders uh, the individual souls existent in both ways, both as inherent, co, a liquid exists, that is that which actualizes the body as a living organism, and as that which is, quod est, which is the underlying uh, um, substance of this uh, faculty of thought, right, the intellect. And um, that means that uh, since uh, this substance has this immaterial faculty that is not dependent for its uh, ongoing existence and operation, for being uh, the soul being united with the body because it is, uh, it is inherent in the soul alone, right? That is why the soul alone can be uh, on its own when it leaves the body um, at death. So it just ceases to be that by which the body uh, is actualized, but it continues to be as that which performs the intellective functions. Make sense? Makes sense to me. Does <laughs> 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 because of the intellectual sort of the intellectual and material part is what causes the rest of the soul to be immortal? It is, um, well, the rest of the soul being uh, the substance of the soul, yes. yes. The substance of the soul is that which has its substantial act of being, which while the human being is alive, is the same as the life of the human being in question. But then that um, act of being ceases to be the life of the human being, so the human being dies, uh, his or her life ends, right? But that is not the end of the existence of the, uh, of the human soul. It just ceases to be uh, as that by which the form, uh, as that by which the body exists, but uh, continues to be as that which is doing these intellective functions on account of its intellective faculty, the intellect. Right? So it is, um, and then of course, uh, what, what else is the rest of the soul? Um, 
the soul, uh, while in the body, of course, has all sorts of other faculties, other powers, such as nutritive, reproductive, digestive, um, sensitive, etc., etc. But the uh, actuality and the activity of those uh, faculties are the activities of various um, organs of the body, right? We, uh, we see with our eyes, optical uh, nerve, cortex, whatnot, right? Uh, so the um, actuality of those faculties and the activity of those faculties are uh, some acts within this material medium, which is the um, uh, human body. But the intellective faculty performs its functions not in the body. Those are not the acts of the soul body composite. So whatever is the act of the soul body composite, with the cessation of the soul body composite, will cease to be. So um, um, the soul, the separate soul, we will not see, we will not hear, uh, we will not digest, etc., etc. of course. Um, but it will be able to think, and it will be able to exchange um, well, information with other spiritual beings out there, and especially God, or the devil, as the case may be. <laughs> and with whatever happens to our individual souls afterwards. <laughs> I cannot promise anything <laughs> in that regard. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> yes? Oh, it is um, uh, quite a lot. It, it, it collects, organizes, uh, and uh, prepares the phantasms in the form of individual intentions for uh, abstraction um, uh, of the agent intellect to prepare the um, uh, intelligible species. So there is a lot going on in the brain. Um, in fact, and also not, uh, not to forget about um, the famous conversio um, at phantasmata uh, doctrine of Aquinas, that even for the proper operation of the intellect um, in this life, we need uh, uh, time and again turn to these uh, imaginations, right? The, um, um, the uh, consideration of singulars, singular instances, or even in our most abstract reasons, say in geometry, we need uh, the help of diagrams to aid our intellect to keep track of what we are talking about, right? And of course, we are not talking about the diagram. We are talking about what we are conceiving on account of the diagram, right? But the diagram certainly helps, right? <laughs> so in that sense, um, uh, the intellect in this life is still somehow dependent on uh, the uh, brain activity and the preparation and uh, uh, transfer of um, the sensory information in, uh, uh, in the form of phantasms. But um, it is just uh, help, and it just provides uh, food for thought, literally, <laughs> almost literally, right? But um, thought itself is... Uh, not that food. <laughs> it's the recipe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Uh, slightly unrelated question uh, to 
two previous questions. Um, I feel like um, you know what you, a lot of what you read, and also like in your first answer, um, you seem to. Uh, what I've been able to extrapolate from that was um, that uh, Thomas Aquinas's account of rational psychology seems to imply that um, the Averroist or or even uh, the the substance dualist point of view, um, in, like you know, as exemplified by Socrates, so like post Plato, mm -hmm. um, kind of uh, implies a, like a. Yeah, so they both imply a, a very like closeted substance dualist position, and if that's or like a crypto like substance dualist position, and if that's the case, would would you uh, agree with um, you know the, the conversion from that point uh, to state that you know uh, substance dualism necessarily implies monopsychism? I I don't see why. Um, Substance dualism would have to imply monopsychism. Can we just uh, individual have individual souls, uh, individual ghosts, and in individual machines? Right, but you know, there's there's always like that, uh, just regress to the singular form. Um, you know, in the kind of yeah, so um, uh, it uh, part. Partly it depends on the uh, metaphysical framework, the broader framework in which you are uh, uh, articulating these different claims about dualism, uh, monopsychism, uh, uh, or, or uh, materialism, etc., etc. So uh, for, for Zizer, um, uh, working in a broad uh, hylomorphist uh, conception and uh, having the conception of individuation that he did, namely, that the principle of individuation is designated matter, and therefore anything uh, immaterial could be only a one in the same species, right? There can be only uh, one uh, single individual um, uh, immaterial substance in one species. Uh, for him, yes, uh, this dualism understood as the duality of intellect and soul. Right? So it's not a mind-body dualism like uh, the post-Cartesian uh, dualisms. But uh, that is why I'm referring to these broader metaphysical contexts in which the positions are articulated. Right? So uh, for uh, Zizer, um the dualism is intellect-soul dualism, not uh, mind-body dualism. It's a different division right there. But for that dualism, um, yes, uh, the separa separate character of the intellect implies its unity. Because it, is, uh, it cannot be glorified in uh, multiple chunks of matter. So even, even for um, the Averroists, um, they would uh, agree with the second, second book of the Animal? Oh yes, yes. Uh, the souls are individual, but they are uh, just a somewhat more complicated animal souls that sort of have this um, uplink to the, uh, the thought processor in the cloud, <laughs> to, to use the modern computer lingo. 
<laughs> but that is um, exactly the idea, actually. It's all about uh, information processing. Um, and that is why it is so easy to relate these ideas to uh, contemporary computer science, because we really don't need to know much about the hardware, right, in order to understand what a computer is doing. Again, what it does, not what it is, right? Um, in the same way, um, uh, when uh, medieval uh, philosophers uh, did cognitive psychology, they were talking about the um, requisite modules or units of uh, information processing in the process in order to be able to account for the functions that are observable in animal and human behavior. So um, that is why I, I usually have these um, block diagrams uh, indicating uh, pretty much the steps of uh, uh, how the flow of information and the steps of uh, uh, individual uh, processing uh, uh, through individual processing units, how the information from um, uh, sensory information streaming in through the senses uh, gets stored in uh, sensory memory how it gets or organized in um, uh, the common sense, uh, how it gets further articulated in the vis cogitativa uh, uh, in the form of re-identifiable individual representations of individuals, and how that can serve as the um, material, the database, for the activity of the agent intellect to form the first universal representations, the in intelligible species, and how that um, can serve as the principle of the activation of intellectual concepts, which then can be put together in judgment in, uh, and in reasonings, um, uh, and uh, uh, leading back to occasionally even singular um, uh, conclusions, which uh, then applies all this abstracted uh, um, and uh, therefore universal information back to the singulars, right? Um, but the big deal is that it, is not, it does not have to be the same singulars from which this universal information got abstracted, but it applies even to individuals or singulars we haven't experienced yet. This is how we can make scientific um, predictions. That's the deal. <laughs> Anything else? Oh, and um, if not, uh, I just uh, realized that I forgot, I forgot to add to this file another <coughs> link to an, another mm, paper I, I wanted to show you, and, um, or at least uh, uh, refer to. It came out in a, a, um, a journal called Divinitas that is uh, edited by the Pontifical Institute in Rome. But it is not um, a, a, a very high circulation, so it is not uh, a, a very easily found, let's say. Um, but I'm, uh, I do want to um, get that paper somewhat more traction. Um, so I'm trying to propagate it uh, <laughs> in, in any, way, uh, any possible ways I can. And, and because uh, there is something about, um, in, in the conclusion of that paper, 
that I really wanted to tack on to this lecture at the end. And now, now it is what is happening, the tacking on. Okay, so what I'm doing there is um, dealing with uh, hylomorphism uh, metaphysics, uh, Aquinas' hylomorphism in, in general, and, um, and its relation to uh, contemporary metaphysical and uh, physical, even physical speculations about what on earth um, uh, such forms properly understood as the determinations of um, acts of being can possibly be. How can we account for them in a contemporary physical uh, view of reality? Now, uh, my claim is that um, Aquinas' uh, understanding of form as the determination of being has its strength precisely in being metaphysical and not physical. That is, it can survive all the ch uh, changes of uh, current vogues and trends in uh, actual physical theory. That is how it could actually survive the collapse of Aristotelian physics and uh, uh, slog through somehow Newtonian mechanics uh, until now it is uh, in uh, some form of revival and uh, people are trying to somehow uh, uh, get it married to quantum physics. But interesting, I found um, uh, a very recent, uh, just uh, about a year ago, um, a physics paper, a paper in mathema mathematical physics that talks about the, uh, um, what uh, it conceives of as the primary building, building blocks of reality, um, um, the fragments of energy. Now, energy is uh, just uh, an English uh, word for the Greek word energeia. And energeia is just Greek for the Latin word actualitas. Actus, actualitas. So um, that is nothing but the good old idea of esse, actus ascendi, conceived of as a, uh, some real um, item that enables the thing to be causally effective. That is what gives it, it its reality. That is why uh, mothers can uh, calm their children when they are afraid of the boogeyman. Don't worry, sweetie, it doesn't exist, right? Uh, it can do no harm, right, or anything like that. So, uh, the, uh, so that uh, uh, seems to be like an, um, an interestingly uh, close conception, close enough to Aquinas' conception in contemporary mathematical physics, which doesn't mean that um, we would have to, as Thomists, so let's say, we would have to commit ourselves to that particular physical theory, because it may just be wrong, it may just you know, go out of fashion, who knows. Um, yet the metaphysical claim must not go out of fashion with the changing physical, uh, fashionable physical theories. That is the, uh, that is the point that I, I really wanted to make at the end. That, um, so um, instead of uh, physica cave metaphysicum, right, as Newton famously claimed, physics stay away from metaphysics, I would say physics cave metaphysice, physics heed metaphysics. <laughs>
Okay, that is my last word then. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> all for coming this evening. Um, please do stay posted um, for our future programming for the rest of this semester. There's a sign-in sheet that's been circulating. I hope everyone's had a chance to sign that. Um, put your name and email address down. If not, the sign-in sheet is over there next to that stack of books. And you're welcome to sign your name on it whenever you get a chance. But as for the rest of our semester, please do stay posted for an upcoming lecture at the end of this month on Thursday, February 23rd titled Martin Luther King Jr. and the Problem of Unjust Laws, which is going to be an exploration of the Thomistic natural law philosophy that underlies Martin Luther King's justification of nonviolent protest to written law. And on Tuesday, the 28th of March, we're going to have a lecture by Professor Thomas Hibbs of Baylor University on beauty, grace, and sorrow, which is an exploration of Thomistic aesthetics. That's all I have for here today. Um, thank you all for coming, and again, have a good night. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.